Welcome back to Civil Action with Brian Kabatek. Usually I have my sidekick, Sean Karnikian, here with me asking witty questions, but not today. Uh, we have very special guest, Ellen Pansky. I'll get to Ellen, introducing Ellen in just a moment. But first, to remind you that usually what we do on Civil Action Podcast is review recent cases that have come down from the California Court of Appeal, California Supreme Court, the Ninth Circuit, sometimes the United States Supreme Court that affects plaintiff's practices. Uh, we try to do these at least once a week try to get them out to you, but occasionally we get very special guests to talk about topical subjects, things that are of interest, and today is no exception. Uh, remember, we're always interested in hearing your feedback. You can reach us at kbklawyers.com. Uh, you also can email or contact me or Sean Karnikian, and you can find our other podcasts where other podcasts are found, like at Spotify, uh, Apple, and locations like that. So, with no further ado, let me welcome Ellen Pansky to uh, our podcast today. Ellen is probably the foremost ethics expert in California. Um, she's well-known, well-regarded. She's represented very many high-profile um, cases in front of the state bar courts and all the way up to the California Supreme Court uh, on these issues. She's also an outstanding expert witness and a, an expert all the way around and served in many capacities as an ethics expert um, and on panels and commissions, including the LA County Bar. Uh, so with no further ado, Ellen, hello, welcome, and thank you for joining us. Thank you, Brian. It's a pleasure to be here. And Ellen, uh, I tried to go over most of your background, but is there anything specific you want to point out about what you're doing these days of interest? I would say that um, a big portion of my practice continues to be state bar defense and other state bar type representation, um, including representation of bar applicants. Um, but more and more, I'm I'm focusing on consulting, um, helping lawyers with risk management, um, you know, assisting them so that when they have an ethical dilemma, they can address it before it becomes a problem or before they get a complaint. And I really enjoy that aspect of the practice. Right. And before we get into one of our first subjects today, um, and just for our listeners, we're recording this in the sort of middle of COVID-19 shutdown and shutdown of the courts. And we're going to talk about that. But you brought up the um, the bar exam. Uh, at this point in time, as it's being recorded, the bar exam is being discussed as an exam that's going to be offered um, on the 10th of September instead of its normal last couple of days of July. And it's also being discussed as um, something that might be done remotely. Any idea of how in, the, in a million years they would be able to proctor that? No, and, and there's been a lot of, of chatter about the fact that, that between now and September is a very short period of time. And if the bar is going to be administered on September 10th, you, you know, is there enough time for the, for the state bar to even, you, you know, put in place protections um, so that there's no, you know, fraud or, or you know, improper activity with respect to the exam. And I can tell you that uh, I have had a number of, of um, bar applicants come to me who have had problems with the proctors during the exam. For example, uh, you're allowed to have a, an analog watch, but not a smart watch. And I had one recent instance in which the test taper, taker wore the same watch. It was in a plastic bag. It was taken into the room every day of the exam. And on the very last day of the exam, the test taker was confronted 
and basically told that they're they're not going to be permitted to use that portion of the exam. So it's unknown how they're going to address all this. Well, there's about 9,000 people who take the um, the summer bar exam every year. And I heard somebody mention that they were thinking of having proctors going to people's homes, which not only raise all kinds of questions about Fourth Amendment search and seizure issues, but um, where would they get the 9,000 proctors? Right. And and where would they, how would they ever prevent uh, exam takers from uh, using notes or calling a friend or having somebody else take the bar exam for it? So it's, it's a nice thought of offering the exam in September, but the big concern I have is that come, say, August, they make an announcement and say, we're not going to do it in September at all. And uh, you know what kind of turmoil that causes in people's lives. It's It really does. And, you know, some states are adopting temporary practice rules where they're allowing law students uh, who haven't passed the bar to do some aspects of law practice. And I don't know if California will consider something like that. Uh, Obviously, there's a lot of pushback. Uh, The idea being that, you know, our standards of the bar are so much higher than most other states. So how could you possibly allow people to start to practice when they haven't even passed the bar? Well, there was talk about doing exactly that, but then having it where somebody who has a certain number of years of experience would have to monitor and, and vouch for the person and watch them, which is nothing more than a certified law clerk anyways. And uh, I think to an awful lot of grads, um, it, it felt an awful lot like uh, a booby prize. It was almost like, don't even bother. I'd rather take the bar and um, wait for my results and look for a job now rather than something like that. Okay, well, anyway. Nevertheless, let's now talk about COVID-19. Uh, tell us your, not just your experiences, but your observations about what's going on with lawyers these days who are trying to cope with uh, COVID-19 and the shutdown, the shutdown of the courts and the, the, their practices. And what issues are you seeing? Well, the interesting thing to me uh, is the number of people who are, in fact, working remotely, even though... Uh, the practice of law is one of the exempt businesses under the stay-at-home order. If you check the the order, um, I think that that law firms do qualify as being exempt. But from my anecdotal experience, the vast majority of lawyers are working remotely, and all virtually all of their staff is working remotely. Um, there are some exceptions, and from what I can tell, people are very careful in terms of sanitizing and engaging in social distancing. Um, But I have seen a change from, say, mid-March to today. Uh, At the beginning of of stay-at-home working remotely, a lot of lawyers were expressing fairly strong objection to the idea that we could have court proceedings or settlement conferences or mediations using video conferencing. And and there was a lot of, I would say, concern, if not outright hostility to the idea that you could have a court proceeding via, say, Zoom. I think that's changing. I'm seeing a lot more lawyers, uh, in, in particular lawyers who have actually used Zoom, um, who see that those type, not just Zoom, but other similar types of video conferencing platforms 
you know, do have the ability to, to open up chat rooms so that the lawyer and the client are given uh, their own means of communication that is secure. So the main issues that I see are, of course, confidentiality. Um, and for, for lit- lawyers who are litigators, I think a lot of lawyers want to make sure that they're not going to lose the the skill that they have. You know, if you're skilled at examination and cross-examination, you don't want that to be impaired if you're seeing somebody on a video screen. Um, same as you're talking about in terms of security of taking the bar exam, if, if somebody's testifying, you want to make sure that they're not surreptitiously looking at notes or using their their cell phone to be, you know, uh, given coaching by somebody in the background. And there are legitimate concerns. But I, within the last two weeks, I've done a state bar of uh, court disciplinary proceeding voluntary settlement conference via Zoom. And I've also done a five-hour mediation in a legal malpractice case via Zoom. And they both worked well. In fact, the, the case settled that we we had the five-hour mediation on. So I, I think as people become more comfortable and experienced using these kinds of remote resources, I think they'll become more prevalent. Well, I certainly think that um, not evidentiary hearings, settlement conferences, and I've certainly done some settlement conferences by Zoom or other platforms, uh, are, are possible. I, I, I do struggle with the idea of an evidentiary hearing or certainly a trial that would take place entirely by remote access. Uh, I guess that's that's maybe that's just the fact that I'm an old guy and it's a little bit harder for me to get my I, ideals around that. Um, uh, what kind of ethical issues are you seeing with sort of these remote platforms? And um, uh, you mentioned certainly one, which was coaching, improperly coaching witnesses. Uh, what other ones do you see? You know, I, I don't see that the, well, let me put it a different way. Like everything else, the ethics of a situation is governed by the integrity of the participants in that situation. And just as in every other area, if somebody is going to be unethical or dishonest, they'll find a way to do it. And I don't think that that is going to change if we're using technology um, rather than having in-person proceedings. I think that there has to be a certain level of basic honesty, willingness to follow the rules, to play by the rules, uh, you know, personal integrity. And that's, that applies anyway. Um, I do think that the ability to maintain client confidentiality is something that has to be paramount. And so I, I am expecting that if we do continue and, and it looks like we will have to continue with social distancing for months, if not much longer, according to what the scientists seem to be predicting, I think the technology will improve and it will become more sophisticated and hopefully it will help us deal with issues including, you know, dishonest or or unethical conduct uh, used by people who are, you know, having to use technology. Well, I agree. And I think that the platforms will improve. And there's certainly things that um, make life a whole lot easier this way. You know, for example, uh, going to New York or out of state 
for a three-hour deposition um, of a peripheral witness or even an expert witness he seems to be something now of largely in the past that we don't have to worry about anymore uh, and we have other ways of doing with it. What I've told my lawyers is I said at the beginning of any of these video depositions, um, make the witness, if you're taking the deposition, make the witness identify all the electronic devices that they have, make them show them to you on the screen, and make them show you that they're turning them off. Because people have been caught texting their witnesses. You know, So it's a lot harder to coach in a deposition that takes place in person as opposed to a virtual deposition. Um, and then the other problem too is where the lawyer for the witness is in the room with the witness and you're remote and that's much harder to know exactly what's going on. But I, I think, you know, you're right. Ultimately it's going to be the integrity of the person. And if they're caught, there's going to be a price to pay. At least I hope there's a price to pay if they're caught. And I hope the judges will come down. on. And I have a, a couple of other thoughts. One is that for, and I know that the civil courts haven't done this, but um, for decades, uh, in a state bar court proceeding, by stipulation of the, the parties, uh, witness testimony could be conducted by phone. Now, often it was more like character witness mitigation testimony. But before COVID hit, I had a trial uh, in, in the state bar court in January. And for strategic reasons, I didn't want the witness to testify in person. I felt that the witness would be really sympathetic and I felt that it would be it would inure to my client's benefit to and and this witness was out of state. So because I thought it would benefit my client, I proposed that the witness testify by phone and the witness did and it was fine. And that was before any of this happened. So it is possible, I mean obviously you want to decide on a case by case basis, but that that's one point. Um you know, I also think that if you're going to use, say, confidentiality and NDAs by by analogy, we do require people and we do have to trust people when, for example, you say, I'll let you see this document, but you have to promise and agree to keep it confidential um, according to the NDA. And that works. I, I, you know, it's it's not impossible to have people uh, agree and 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 hold themselves to to high standards of ethics and honesty. And I think the vast majority of people do. I think that the problem, of course, is that there's a few bad apples. And maybe in big metropolitan areas, it's easier to be a bad apple than in smaller communities, or especially lawyers who don't think that um, anyone will find out about their reputation or they don't care. Um, but let me change subjects. Let's, let's talk about something uh, very topical, which is, and, and certainly important to folks that practice in the plaintiff's world, which is the acquisition of cases and the ethical acquisition of cases. And I'm specifically talking today about um, various internet platforms which provide for um, the ability to share case leads with lawyers who subscribe to those kinds of services. And there's a recent case that, that came down from the Court of Appeal, and um, I, I believe that it involves a company called Legal Match. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that, Ellen. Yes, I'd be happy to. So in uh, November of 2019, the appellate court issued an opinion in a case in which the marketing and advertising company Legal Match, which has, as you said, panels of attorney subscribers and Legal Match does advertising. And then according to a formula, they will distribute the leads to the lawyer subscribers um, who then will make contact with the clients. 
And the appellate court found, well, Legal Match um, was owed money by one of the lawyer's subscribers. So Legal Match was uh, taking action against its uh, subscriber. The subscriber then defended itself by saying Legal Match was engaged in unauthorized lawyer referral service activity and had failed to become certified by the California State Bar as required by Business and Professions Code Section 6155. The appellate court found that Legal Match was, in fact, engaging in referral activity. It applied the statute in a rather direct and superficial manner and said, you're you're engaged in lawyer referral service activity. You're not certified. The statute says you must be certified. You violated the law, so we're not going to enforce your contract. So, so Ellen, I'm just going to inter- interrupt and, and, and just take it in a slide direction for a moment, which is like, unfortunately, so many of these rules of professional conduct, they've been on the books for a long time and they haven't been updated, at least in my humble opinion. You're free to disagree with me. And the lawyer referral service goes back literally, I believe, decades where um, the where I think it even may predate Bates versus Arizona, which is the first attorney advertising case about how cases could get um, referred out. Isn't that true? Yes. And the interesting thing is that in the, in the early 1990s, after lawyer advertising exploded and after the the U.S. Supreme Court issued its opinions in Bates and Oralic and Primus, the California State Bar began to crack down on all of the companies. And there were numerous uh, different types of marketing advertising companies, even at that time, and assert that they, in fact, were lawyer referral services. I represented one of the major advertisers at that time, and we successfully stayed off the State Bar's challenge. And the State Bar adopted an internal memo, which they've never published. But what they said was, we are going to distinguish between collective advertising, where a group of lawyers pool their resources and and uh, pay for joint advertising, and we will distinguish that from lawyer referral service activity as long as certain criteria is met. And one of the criteria that they used was in the advertising, the name of each individual lawyer was listed. The concept being that if a member of the public liked the name Ellen Pansky, they could call that number and say, well, I want to be connected with Ellen Pansky. Of course, as a practical matter, that really doesn't make sense because if a client or a prospective client knows a lawyer, they don't respond to these types of advertisers. They call that lawyer. But About two years ago, kind of out of the blue, the State Bar started sending cease and desist letters to some lawyers who were using some of these services. And I was retained by a couple of those lawyers, and I wrote to the bar, and I set forth the history, and I said, you know, the State Bar has already taken the position now, you know, decades ago, that these types of joint advertising cooperatives or programs are outside of the definition of lawyer referral service. And I got no response from the bar until now the the issue has has reared its head again. And just this week, citing the Jackson versus or legal match versus Jackson case, the state bar has filed a civil lawsuit seeking injunctive relief against legal match 
seeking a court order precluding them from continuing any business activities unless and until they become certified by the state bar as a certified LRS. Okay, so let me ask you this hypothetical, though, and, and uh, you know, correct me if I'm wrong here, but if you and I formed a law firm together, we'll call it Pansky and Capitec, see, I, appropriate deference to you, and we decide that we're going to advertise on television, we're advertising in our name, and our, our goal is to get very, very good cases, but we're going to get a lot of cases, and we then end up referring the vast majority of our cases out to other lawyers have we violated any state bar rules? Well, that's the that's the open question because there are organizations in existence and operation today that are doing exactly that. There are some that ha- were had radio ads within the last couple of years saying, you know, we know the best lawyers in the you know in town, and we will evaluate your case and we will we will match you with the best lawyer for you. That's lawyer referral service activity. One of the features of lawyer referral service activity is that it's not just lead generation. The lawyer is not just paying for, you know, being on what might be thought of as a wheel that rotates. And then every time your number comes up as lawyer number one in a 10 lawyer rotation, that case is going to go to you um, and it's not going to be screened. If, if there's screening involved, if the service is trying to evaluate the case, and then go beyond just giving a lead to the lawyer who's next up in rotation and instead try to evaluate which lawyer is best for that lawyer, that's considered to be referral service activity. And that's the turning point at which you're supposed to get state bar certification. Right. And and is there a danger to the public, though, here in any of these platforms that, that people are getting matched up with lawyers before they have an opportunity to check out the lawyer that they're hiring? And uh, is that a concern that we should have? Well, again, uh, the way I come down on it is there's very little empirical data to show that any of the clients who have used these recognized, established services uh, have suffered any harm. And the detractors or objectors to allowing these services to operate unless they're certified um, it basically is, well, it's the equivalent of capping and that's, you know, that's totally improper. And there are people who are going to misrepresent their qualifications and we just can't let the, you know, prospective client be harmed in this way. The problem with those arguments in my mind is it's not enough to say hypothetically, uh, that clients could be harmed because we're talking about first amendment privileged commercial speech. And uh, as you said, back in the 70s, when the U.S. Supreme Court was issuing cases like Bates um, and its progeny, the, the analysis was there has to be a substantial state interest that's being protected. You cannot say lawyers should be prohibited from advertising because there might be a misrepresentation or it might be untruthful or they might be intrusive. You know, all of those arguments were rejected by SCOTUS. And right. I think that... I, and think I, I, would, I would add to that also that, say, that you know, these are not... Service, go ahead. No, you go ahead, Ellen. I'm sorry, I was interrupting you. I was just going to finish the point that to my way of thinking, if you have lawyers who are paying for a legitimate professional marketing and advertising company to make 
people who clearly don't know how to get to a lawyer aware that there are lawyers that that are available to represent them, that is advertising. I don't think that anybody could realistically call that capping. Right. And my my two points about this were that capping is very clearly, I am going to deliver to you a client and you're going to pay me for that client showing up, a specific client or even sharing in the fees, both of which are illegal and improper. And this is just paying an advertising agency to advertise for you. That's point number one. And point number two is none of this, anything you're talking about with Legal Match or any of the similar advertising platforms or firms that are out there involve direct solicitation, right? And and we know that the United States Supreme Court in Shapiro versus Kentucky Bar, which I will mention is my law review article from more than 30 years ago, was based on that case. Uh, and if you ever read it, any of our listeners read it, you'll be the only person that's ever read it. So let me know. Email me immediately if you've read my article. I've uh, read it three times. <laughs> oh, nobody's read it. My mother told me she fell asleep after the second page. Please. Well, I love the Shapiro case. I'm glad you mentioned the Shapiro case because Shapiro, to your point, distinguished between allowing lawyers to send direct targeted mail advertisements to prospective clients, even if the lawyer knows that that person has a potential claim and distinguish that so long as it's truthful, not misleading, and clearly marked as an advertisement from the improper, intrusive, harassing type of of solicitation of clients, which is not permitted. Quite an interesting subject, and, and, and one where... I don't think until this legal match case came down, the state bar really weighed in very much on advertising. I mean, certainly, I'm sure you'd tell me that they've gone after people who engage in capping and, and improper fee sharing and things like that. But um, the mere advertising itself doesn't seem to be an area that I see a lot of reported cases on. But maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there's a whole group out there at the state bar prosecutor's office that goes after lawyers for advertising. Well, you're not wrong. Um, but on the other hand, the state bar does, uh, write to lawyers if they receive a complaint about advertising. I, I defended one just this month where, uh, an individual who doesn't appear to be a lawyer, just a member of the public complained because he thought that a billboard ad, um, was, was improper. I'm not going to get in the details of it, but, but they do write to the state bar does write to the lawyer and say, ju- basically justify, um, how the statement that you're making in your advertising is not misleading. And it's interesting because as you know, we have new rules of professional conduct, not, not quite as new now that were effective November 1st, 2018. And one of the things that changed substantially are the advertising rules. And under the old rule, which was 1-400, they had adopted standards, which were presumptions affecting the state bar burden of proof. And if the if the lawyer engaged in advertising that violated one of the standards, then presumptively that conduct was misleading. There are no standards currently. They have not adopted any new standards, and those the prior standards have been repealed. And there's also a movement, national movement, 
um, which is supported by the Association of Professional Responsibility Lawyers, to do away with all these specific advertising rules and simply stick to a rule which says lawyers shall not engage in untruthful, false, or misleading advertising uh, because of the First Amendment. Right. That pesky First Amendment. So, Ellen, let, let's shift gears here. And for our last couple of minutes, let's talk about some of the civility issues. I've talked to other lawyers about this and uh, getting worse, about the same. What are the problems you see out there? The main problem I see, and again, like you, I've been in practice for many decades. When when we first started practicing, it it was truly a situation where if somebody gave you their word, if you called someone and said, look, I need a two-week extension to do discovery responses, and they said, okay, you could, you know, you could count on that. And what I see more now is that if, if something is not confirmed in writing, uh, there are lots of lawyers who feel no compunction in saying, no, I didn't agree. And you didn't get it in writing, so therefore it doesn't exist. And I, I think that, unfortunately, you know, the the old way of practicing law, which was with, um, you know, not just civility, but with um, a certain level of con- congeniality, uh, we're here together to get to, you know, a fair and reasonable result. I, I think that that's degraded quite a bit, and I think it's quite unfortunate. And I and I think it may be because, especially in California, the sheer number of lawyers and the competitiveness over cases um, and the financial pressures that lawyers face are very strong these days. Yeah, it's something. And I, I saw in a lawyer just the other day advertising on television where the entire tone and tenor of the advertisement was come to me for a second opinion, which is darn close to fire your lawyer and hire me. And I I mean, constitutionally, maybe very well protected, but it's, you know, very questionable and very aggressive in my in my humble opinion. Well, I agree with you. And it's funny because if you circle it back to the advertising issues, there are a lot of people who say lawyers should be prohibited from uh, describing themselves as a pit bull, using a picture of a tiger, a picture of a shark, because the purists would say that that gives the wrong impression that lawyers are perfectly uh, entitled to be uh, to have to be lacking in civility, uh, to take advantage of their opponent in in any way that possible. So, you know, on the one hand, I'm a big proponent of advertising, and I think that. People pretty much know that if you use the picture of a pit bull, that doesn't mean that you're going to be unethical. On the other hand, you know, I think people are getting away from the idea that civility is an important quality. Okay, so Ellen, quick question for you. If you were in charge of the California State Bar, what one change you would make? If you could make one change, what would it be? I would make it mandatory that the state bar prosecutor who has authority to settle a case be present for settlement discussions. I think the reason that the state bar has a perennial backlog, the reason that the state bar constantly is going to the legislature and seeking more money for more and more prosecutors is that 
They don't listen when the judge says to them, this is the, this case should be settled and this is a level that you should settle it at. I will tell you that when I go to a settlement conference, whether it's a civil case or a state bar case, and the judge says to me and my client, you are not going to get that level of discipline. You have to face reality. This is what's going to happen in this case. I take that to heart and I make my client take that to heart. And that has to apply equally to the prosecutor. Okay. So normally what we do in these, when I have my sidekick, Sean, here with me, is we get to ask our guests a, a series of very quick, really stupid questions. Without him here, they're going to be extra stupid because his questions are usually better than mine. But I'm just going to fire off quick questions for you, okay? So you the didn't first tell me about this. No, I didn't. I, I don't, but I do this to everybody. So it's okay. It's equal and fair treatment. Question number one, if you were a cartoon character, what cartoon character would you want to be? Jessica Rabbit. If you had a superpower, what superpower would you want? I'd like to fly so fast that I could turn back time. Um, I used to ask people about what they would want for their last meal. And Sean then reminded me one day that that was sort of morbid. So now I just ask people, what's your favorite meal? Oh, I'm going to have to say lamb chops grilled with garlic and some really fresh green vegetable. Wow, that sounds delicious, especially since it's COVID-19 time when all we seem to do is eat. So uh, my favorite song, favorite song? Blackbird by the Beatles. Favorite movie? Grapes of Wrath. Uh, if you could travel somewhere right now, where would you want to travel to? Well, I was supposed to be in London right now, so I'm going to say London. And when COVID-19 is over and we return to some sense of normalcy, what's the first thing you'd like to do? Go to a restaurant and have a nice dinner. Well, Ellen Pansky, you've been a terrific guest. Thank you very much for being here with us on Civil Action today. Uh, folks, always interested in your comments. You can reach us at kbklawyers.com. This is Brian Kabatek, uh, usually with Sean Karnicki, and you can reach out to either of us. And uh, finally, check out our other podcasts at uh, places you normally find podcasts. So, Ellen, thank you so much. Thank you.